Hello and welcome to episode 179 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Today's guest is the writer, producer and actor Jeffrey Reddick. Jeffrey is responsible for creating the Final Destination film franchise. He wrote the story for the first and the second, which are easily my favourite as part of this franchise. They're a really guilty pleasure, and whenever I see a new one announced, I get excited. I love the originality of each death, and just the popcorn and beer and kind of pizza element of these films. They're really fun, and I'm sure everyone that's listening loves these films as much as me. But before we get into that interview with me and Jeffrey today, I'd like to touch base and talk about my last episode. I was joined by the amazing Cameron Crowe and Greg Mariotti. We got to sit down and celebrate Almost Famous in style, and the response to this episode was absolutely fantastic, so thank you to everyone that tuned in. But let's get back to today's episode. Me and Jeffrey Reddick, we talk all things TV, film, acting, politics, and so much more. So I think the best thing to do is to get straight to the interview. So here's me and Jeffrey talking all things film. So Jeffrey, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. What I wanted to do today is I've had various directors and writers, um, and I love to take it back to the beginning of their careers for the listeners out there that are tuning in for the first time. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do is to try and get an idea of what got you into the kind of the love of film or the concept of being able to write. So I know at a very young age, you you penned and put together a prequel to Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. But let's go back before that. So even younger, what what was it? Can you remember those early films you were watching or maybe you were sat around with your family that had an influence? What was it that made you love cinema and film? Um, a lot of it was when I was very young was television because uh, we we grew up um, in eastern Kentucky, so it was very poor area. So th- there was like one movie theater um, that didn't we couldn't afford to go to a lot. So I watched a lot of television and then a lot of VHS uh, horror films. Like I got hooked on horror at a very young age. Um, and my dream growing up was always to be an actor. Like I talked to some relatives and they were like, yeah, when you were like, six and seven, we asked you what you're going to do when you grew up and you said you were going to be a movie star. So I always had wanted to be in the film industry. Uh, and I think it was just the magic of movies and TV, just everything was so, you know, like we grew up in a poor area. Um, it was a little backwards in a way, as far as race goes and, and things like that. So there was an escapism to watching these shows and seeing these people like travel the world and do like awesome things. Yeah. And, and, so I just fell in love with, with all of that um, and watched entertainment um, tonight every single night to see the behind the scenes stuff. And I was just like, I'm one of these days I will be in Hollywood. <laughs> that was my. And that's a really good thing, especially at such a young age. I mean, most people I talked to are like, oh, in my teenagers, I'd finished college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I got into acting and film school. But you knew literally at the age of six or seven, you were telling people that that's definitely what you want to do. But yeah, what was it for you that made it kind of, choose the path because you can go down as a director uh, a producer a writer or you could obviously want to be an actor but you you chose more of the writing side yeah and that was actually more decided for me uh because when i went i went to new york when i was 19 and um got an internship at new line cinema got an acting agent and i was going to the american academy of dramatic arts but in the early 90s uh diverse casting was not on anybody's radar at all so my agent told me, 
that she didn't know what to do with me. She said I was like an ethnic Michael J. Fox type, which I thought was awesome because Michael J. Fox was in Back to the Future and Family Ties and everybody loved him. Yeah. And she's like, no, you're, she basically was telling me I wasn't ethnic enough. Um, yeah. And I couldn't play basketball. I couldn't rap. I couldn't play like the gangster stereotypical roles that were being offered. So there, there was just a lack of opportunity um, for me as an actor who wasn't, white to be honest yeah and so then i was like well screw it i love writing so i'll just write stuff and put myself in it but then i kept writing about teenagers way past my teenage years so um <laughs> and i just fell in love with writing because it's um it's something that you have control over yeah you can't make somebody buy your script but you can write it um so, and, so were, you, were you studying and taking that route to try and get did you go to film school or were you doing it during university or were you just doing it in all your spare time um, no, I, I mean, I was studying acting in college, but when I went to New York, um, after that, we're honestly working at New Line Cinema out of New York was because yeah. um, that was their corporate office. I mean, that was pretty much my film school education because I got to see how the sausage was made, yeah. you know, how they put everything together. Um, and I think the most useful thing that I learned was that I, I had to be patient because I saw how the decisions were made. And I think this is good advice for anybody in the industry whether it's casting or writers, because we would get like a great script in and from an unknown writer. And then a really crappy script would come in with Jim Carrey attached. I'm just throwing his name out there. I'm not saying a specific yeah. film, but they would say, let's make the crappy movie with Jim Carrey. So they wouldn't, you know, so the other writer's script would get passed on, even though everybody loved the writing. And it's the same thing with acting. Um, you don't know what's going on in that final casting decision. It could be something as silly as, well, we don't want two brunettes in the two lead roles. Or I was in a situation once where producers like, she looks like my ex-girlfriend. I, I can't work with her. <laughs> so you have like really ridiculous decisions or reasons that things are decided on behind the scenes. So I learned to separate my value as a, as a writer and an actor from, my, from what other people said about my work. Because I know yeah. a lot of people, every time they get rejected, it crushes them. And I learned that this isn't really about my work. It's there's so many, it's my work, but other factors that I have no control over. And did that not put you off? Because obviously when you're trying to get into an, an industry that's so difficult to break through in, when it comes down to such minimalistic things like, oh, it's it reminds me of my ex-girlfriend or, you know, it, it, some of the decisions that these movies don't get made. Are you thinking, how the hell am I ever going to get anywhere when there's, this happening around me and I'm getting to see it firsthand on a daily basis. I am one of those super optimistic things work out. Like I don't mean to sound cheesy, but I, I, this working in this industry was always, I feel like my destiny. And I don't mean that in a hippie kind of way. It's just, I knew from such a young age, like there was no other path that I was going to take in my life. So I, my mom told me to take up science, you know, so I could get a real job or computer science. And I didn't, you know, so I, I, I had no backup plan. So I knew if I stuck with it, I knew it would take time, but I knew stuff would work out. And I knew it wouldn't be easy. Like, you know, fi after Final Destination, like all of my films, like 99% of them have been, you know, low budget indie films, like the scripts sold to a studio and then went into turnaround and then, you know, some independent producers picked it up and then shot it for half a million dollars. So, you know, I haven't had the $23 million to $40 million Final Destination budgets on all my other films. No. But as a horror fan, 
A, I have final destination that if I died tomorrow, I could be happy that that's left a mark on the business. Yeah. But B, I also have other films that I'm really proud of. Um, and I've been working at doing what I love. So that when I see a lot of my friends who are working in jobs, they hate. Um, and a lot of them are making a lot more money than me, which is okay. But the fact that I'm working in something that I've always wanted to work in and I've kind of evolved over yeah. time as well. Like I've started producing more. I've started just started directing. Um, so it's still like there's a lot for, that I want to do. And, and how was it? Because a lot of people, when I talk to writers or screenplay writers, etc., they'll work their way up and eventually after 10 or 20 years will get that big hit that they've really wanted. And for you, it came quite early. You know, when it's, it was year 2000 over 20 years ago now it's just frightening um yeah final destination for me is up there with the franchises like scream that changed horror it was one of those moments that just everyone was talking about i remember everyone going to the cinema and being obsessed you know it's the stuff like urban legend those films that came out during that era that everybody saw and final destination still today is some people's favorite films because it was so original it was so great and to hit so high so early was it was it then really daunting to try and ever match that again um i would be lying if i said it wasn't you you always and that's part of the business you have to come you have to get become at peace with because you can't predict what a movie is going to become like i always thought there would be sequels if they made it right i didn't think it would turn into what it did no and for the years after that, people kept saying, well, bring us something like Final Destination. I'm like, you don't understand. Like the studio didn't want to make Final Destination because they couldn't see how you had a death as the killer. Like, yeah, we, we had to threaten to take it to another studio before they made it. And they were still leery about it. So and so when I would pitch original ideas, they're like, mm, this is this feels too, you know, like they they don't want to take a chance on something that's original. No. So I just keep writing and um I had to quit chasing, you know, I, I do say I don't want to be like now at this point, I don't just want to be the final destination guy. Like I, I have a couple other films that I want to do. Um, and I think we have the right budget and the, the right stuff. Like I'm going to be doing my first slasher movie, which I'm really excited about. Amazing. And then I have my passion project, which is kind of a mixture of Nightmare on Elm Street, a la West or a la Stephen King that I'm, that I've held on to for like, I don't want to say how long because then people might be like, oh, it's dated. But I've just held on to it because I'm like, yeah. I have to do this one because this is like all me. So, um, but yeah, like there was a lot of times because every movie, you know, especially when you set up a studio, you're like, oh, if they make this, it could be as successful as Final Destination. Um, and then when it gets put in turnaround and somebody buys it and makes it for like a really low budget, you're like, gonna be hard for me this, this isn't gonna be it. this one's not gonna be it so i kind of let that go yeah. <laughs> finally and, and with final destination obviously it's hard to ignore but how did that concept uh come about because obviously like you said to try and sell it into a studio death is the killer it's it's you know if you told someone that it doesn't sound as interesting as when you see the film and then realize that you know they've been avoiding that death ever since they were meant to be on that plane so it's yeah, a really clever concept that then sells so well. And that's why the sequels, I think, were so good, because they could just keep avoiding death in many different ways. But how yeah. did the original idea come? What was it that inspired it? Or what was it made that kind of sparked that thought for you? 
Well, the, the premonition came first, um, the premonition idea. And I, and I got that. I was reading an article on a flight, on a plane trip, actually, about a woman who was on vacation and her mother called her and said, don't take the flight home that you're on tomorrow because I have a bad feeling about it. So the woman changed flights and then she found out the plane that she was supposed to be on crashed. So I was reading that on a plane and I and I just filed that away as like, oh, this is an interesting idea. Like what yeah. if she cheated death? So it took, uh, it took, it took a while to percolate into like a story. Um, I came up with the first iteration when I was trying to get a TV agent and I had to write something, a spec TV show for something that was on air. So I was like, oh, this would be a cool setup for like an X-Files episode. So I used it like Scully's brother um, had had the premonition. And it, but then my friends at New Line read it and they're like, don't send this to the X-Files. This is a good idea for a feature. Um, so then I just kind of fleshed it out into a feature after that. And yeah, it just had to be like they missed their time to die. And originally it was that Alex had the premonition because he wasn't supposed to die. Yeah. Uh, because they always, you know, this is film school learning, but they always tell you, you know, you have to add, answer why this person, why now? And so I put that in there and then they took it out in the movie. So it's like, it is funny. Like they'll tell you there are all these rules to movies, but then sometimes when they make them, they don't follow them. Um, so it's an, it's another lesson just to learn as, as a creative as you're, as you're going forward and get a lot of rules like banged into your head. Like sometimes you can break them. And were you happy with the sequels that came along? I know you were involved in writing of the characters and stuff, but were you happy with the way the story went on it? I think it got to about, Five films, didn't it? And then they did the yeah. Nation. So yeah. Did you feel um, too many, or were you thinking actually that's about right? I well, I I personally think why the hell are there like twenty Friday the Thirteenth sequels and only yeah. five Final Destination? Um, no, I'm really happy. I mean, I wrote the story for the second one, um, so I that's actually my favorite. To be honest, I just yeah. feel like I got to do all the stuff that I love in horror sequels, like. You know, I set up a group of teenagers that you think are going to be the leads, and then I kill them all except for Kimberly. Um, and then I bring back some original um, people from the first film, which I also love. And I got to kind of explain how the people being alive when they should have been dead in the first movie rippled out and affected other people. So I got to do all the stuff that I think good sequels get to do. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy all of them. I mean, I know people have their favorites and the ones I, I think the fifth one is probably after the second one is really high up there for me. Like, yeah. I feel like the fifth one was really made for the fans. Um, it just feels like it. It's got more Tony Todd. Yeah. It's got, you know, that gymnastic scene is probably one of my favorite scenes in the It stays with me for a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I love the roller coaster on the third one. I love that. That's one of my favorite openings to a horror. I just think it's... It's amazing. I've, I'm always worried now if I go to Walton Towers and any theme park, I'm like, I don't know if I want to go on the roller coaster again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't like roller. I've never liked roller coasters, no. so I don't go on them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and at the moment, um, we're obviously promoting Don't Look Back, which is your brand new film. Uh, we're getting yes. it out over here literally this week on DVD and digital. But um, how did this concept come about? Do you want to tell the people that are listening today how this idea came for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the original idea... Um, there was a story of this woman named Kitty Genovese in the, in, um, New York who was assaulted in, in her, um, apartment courtyard and the story that came out, this happened in the, I think the seventies or eighties that, but it became like an urban legend almost in America that all these people like watched and didn't help her. 
So that story actually stuck with me. Um, and I didn't know what quite what the film was for, but as I was getting older and I'm like looking at life, I just started looking around and I just started, I start thinking like we've really as a society and as a world have started losing empathy for other people. Um, especially in the cell phone age, like people see something bad happening and their first instinct is to record it yeah. and post it online and not help somebody. Um, so I really wanted to kind of delve into that, that world, um, about, how, you know, what makes somebody guilty. If, you know, if you stand by and do nothing, are you guilty? Um, there are different levels of guilt. How does that affect you? Uh, and the, the change that I, cause originally my version, I did a, I did have a hardcore horror version of this where it was straight up karma, like, you know, obliterating people. But I felt like that was too similar to Final Destination. So I wanted to make it more of a mystery. Like you don't know if it's killer or a supernatural force that's coming after them. So it's interesting in that there's a mystery there. But, you know, for horror fans, I know some of them, especially expecting the Final Destination kind of deaths are going to be a little disappointed just because I couldn't show any of the deaths yeah. on screen because that would have given away what's going on one way or the other. But, um, you know, again, for this, for, for me, this one, the, the theme of just people's lack of empathy um, for each other has really hit me so hard that I feel like it's just something I had to tell a story about. And, and do you think that's getting worse with the pandemic and people now on such a divide with the vaccine and people's views on race at the moment and the presidency and every, everything in the world? Everyone seems to just be at each other's throats all the time. If I read oh, anything yeah. on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, it's always two sides and it, no one wants to ever be wrong. And I understand that, but I just feel that like, there's no empathy about anything at the moment in the world, you no. know, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard time to, you know, be around people and have any sort of discussion because everyone seems to have such a strong view on everything. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because I thought it started when the internet first came up, I thought, Oh, wow, this is going to be a wonderful thing because people will see no matter where you're at in the, the world that we're all like human beings and we all are similar. And I think it'll help solve a lot of problems. But, you know, the noise kind of tends to rise at the top and the most controversial outlandish things seem to rise to the top. And I thought I was hoping that COVID would bring us together kind of like 9-11, which was a horrible tragedy, kind of brought the world together. But because we were forced to stay at home for so long, yeah. for over a year, you know, it's, you know, because I'm sober, I've been, I haven't drank in 14 years, but they always say like the most dangerous place for an alcoholic to be as alone in their own head. And I think that's true for anybody. So I think because people were kind of stuck at home and their only outlet was the internet, people used it to find, you know, cause you're angry because yeah. you're, you know, cause you're in fear because you don't know anything about what's going on with COVID. Um, we had a president who was just, just lying all the time. Yeah. Um, which made everybody's fear and angst. He just very, he tapped into that nationalism, like our country, our white heritage is better than anything. And yeah, and just made, he made it okay for people to say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> um, yeah. And we're still suffering from that. I think I, I, I don't know how we're, and it's, it's not, a, it's a problem on all sides. It's not just on one side. Cause I have friends that are like, I will not talk to anybody who voted for Trump. I, you know, 
I won't even talk to them. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous because you have to have conversations. And then I have friends on the other side that are like, haha, we finally got to stick it to you all liberals. Um, and it's like you know, sticking it to people. It shouldn't be yeah. <laughs> what life is about. Like, so I'm, I'm hoping that we, I, I'm hoping that things will get better. Um, yeah. As the world starts opening up again and people start, stop getting as bottled up at home and as angry. Um, I, you know, God knows the politicians here and the meat not here. Cause I'm in Spain, the politicians back in America and probably around in other countries too. I've seen it, you know, they're, they're stirring up the nationalism pot, um, you know, which, you know, we should all be proud of our nations, but we have to realize that all of our nations are part of a world yeah. community. And unless, until we start really taking care of the world and seeing people as people again, like we're just going to keep this shit up. And you've talked about trying to get this message obviously in your new film about empathy and being there for each other and not being the first person with a phone to try and get so many likes because you've filmed someone being hurt or something, which is the way the world's going. But where do you want to go next? Have you used COVID and the time away to kind of be on your own and finish some projects that maybe were always oh, I'll do that in a bit if I get some time. Have you now got the time to finish those things or have you just reflected on your own life more? Or how, how have you used the time to constructively create more for yourself? Um, the, the first part of COVID until the election was pretty bad because yeah. I just spent all of my time online waking up every morning going, what the hell did our idiot president yeah. tweet today that's going to set the world on fire? Um, after the election, well... After the insurrection, things I finally started calming down a little bit. Yeah. Um, the saving grace for me creatively last year was I got to work on a couple of animated features, um, which were really fun to do. And I got to work with some really cool people. Um, they haven't announced the first one yet, but it's coming out in October, which they should announce it soon. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, it, it was um, a cool kind of fairy tale-ish kind of series. And then um, I worked on a spinoff of uh usagi ujimbo which is a very famous japanese cartoon so um so that was having work to do was great because it was really hard for me to focus on my own stuff because i'm very i'm a cancer so i'm just very like empathetic and you know i see stuff and it, it really bothers me so i was kind of really sucked into like all the negativity and the hatred that was going on out there it was just really depressing me so um yeah, <laughs> so I couldn't figure out. Luckily, I had work to do, but I wouldn't yeah. have been able to channel it in, 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 into my own. You said that you, if you did die tomorrow and being known as the guy that created Final Destination, you'd be happy because it was a, a huge thing for the genre. It's a hell of a legacy that you've left. But also on the interview today, you said that you don't want to be the guy that's known just for the Final Destination film. So getting into the world of you said directing you've started to do uh you're still writing what is it that you've set yourself as goals that you want to achieve are there things out there that really are important to you to try and tick off in the you know the time we've got left in this world um you know i think i i just want to make great films i mean i'm excited to do a, again a slasher movie just because i all my stuff's been supernatural yeah um you know i'm I got to, and don't look back, got to cast a very amazing African-American actress 
um, in the lead role. And that's been something I've been fighting for my whole career. Um, so diversity is really important, you know, because I know what I went through as an actor. Yeah. So having people of, of color, having LGBTQ representation is hugely important to me. So I haven't had the, like they've either whitewashed or degayed characters in all my scripts, yeah. but now I'm at the point where going forward, I have scripts and that's not going to happen. So for me, it's really important just to get more diversity and it's not necessarily even telling stories that are important. I mean, you know, black people, I mean, not stories that are important. It's not, it's not making movies that are about an issue yeah. affecting the black community or affecting the LGBTQ community. It's just, you know, we're people and sometimes we go to college campuses and if there's a serial killer around, you know, maybe he doesn't try to kill all the pretty white people. Maybe he tries to kill all the pretty brown and the gay people, you know, <laughs> it's, it's um, for me, it's like representation is, is almost as important as having a story that's about an issue. Yeah. Um, sometimes you just want to go see, you know, especially for young people, like going to the theater and seeing like a lead character that looks like you is something that w most people don't have the lead, the, you know, the joy of seeing, especially in genre films. So that's something I definitely want to change um, in my work going forward. And do you like the fact that now we're getting a lot more lead casting of black actors in horror? So stuff like Us, which was only a couple of years ago, was a full black family as the leads instead of it being the traditional white uh, high school girls. We're getting to see a lot more acceptance and it's good that directors are now being in a position where they can cast the gay actors or the gay actresses and it's more acceptable and it's the way it should be. It's the norm now instead of it being, like you said, you'd never get it over the line 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's made me very hopeful. Um, you know, it's, it still is. I mean, I think that the conversation that gets lost um, just in the general public, because people complain about when you talk about diversity, um, as I like to explain, like, whenever you go out for a leading role for a film, like the default in the casting directors and the studio's heads is always a white male or woman, white, straight, male or woman, as far as talent goes. Yeah. So even if I send out a casting notice saying open to all ethnicities, I will get 90% white actors and actresses submitted. So you have to kind of go out because I've seen so many talented, you know, actors of all races, you know, yeah. not just black, but of all races come in for stuff and they they just never get offered the lead roles. So, you know, I just want to get more of that representation up there. I want to get more you know, LGBTQ characters on screen. Um, yeah, my, my, my fantasy, but I probably won't do it um, for this, for my passion project is I want to cast like a whole film with all LGBTQ actors and actresses, but not have any of the characters be <laughs> LGBTQ. Just because, you know, they're always like, oh, well, you know, a gay person can't play straight or nobody would buy a romance between, yeah. you know, it doesn't feel authentic. So I'm, I'm going to probably do that on, with one of my projects. Just do it sneaky. That's amazing. And how is the world of directing to comparing to yourself from spending so long writing? Obviously, I see a lot of actors that go into directing after 20, 30 years in the industry. But as a writer taking that step to direction, is it exciting? Is it scary? Is it, you know, everything you'd hope for and more? Or is it just it's terrifying? Both. Like, oh, my God, what am I doing? No, it's it's both. I mean, it's it's funny because as a writer, I used to get frustrated because I'm like, why did the director not direct this like I wrote it? Yeah. But then when I directed something that I wrote, I realized why that happens is a lot of times you have to think about budget and locations and how many shooting days you have. So when you're writing, you don't put any limits on yourself. 
And then when you're directing, you're limited by literally your budget and how many shooting days you have. So I had to learn like, oh, wow, even the don't look back. I wrote that movie, but it doesn't look like the movie I had in my head when I <laughs> wrote it. Um, so it was an interesting process because now on this next project, I'm kind of um, we're location scouting now, but we're going to be shooting later in the year. So I'm going to be a lot more mindful of shooting days and kind of finessing the script so that we can like make the best film possible for for the budget and, and that's literally what i was going to say has it completely changed now do you think your writing style will change to adapt to know what the mindset is of the director now that you've had a taste of it are you kind of thinking actually when i'm writing i might have to change that and the style might be different because when it becomes reality and creating it on film you know now how it should be for the director and now you know why it hasn't been the way it was written previously well it's it's funny because um when i wrote final destination craig perry who's the producer who's an amazing amazing man um he actually went through my first draft and cut out he's like quit directing quit directing because i would do like the camera comes in and uh, i would direct in my script right. and directors don't like that because they want to put their own mark on it yeah. so I, I still have to catch myself but if it's something i know i'm going to direct then I'm going to write it like that. Um, I'm going to write the directions in there. And um, yeah, if it's something I know I'm going to direct, but for other direct for, you know, I have to kind of keep it as clean of a slate as possible for, for a director when they come in, because, you know, they'll come in and be like, this is a movie I see as a template for this. And you're like, that's a like Steve Miner, when he did the day of the dead remake, he's like, I'm going to use mission impossible as like a visual style for this movie. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, really okay steve I, I love your work so do yeah. it okay <laughs> and a question that i ask everyone that comes on the podcast there'll be a lot of people that are listening today that are either at film school or university or college that want to get into the industry and not everyone has to become a director or an actor and mm -hmm. i don't have enough writers on the podcast and it's something i want to do but what advice do you give to anyone that's writing scripts at the moment or concepts of films and wanting to get their work seen. I know we're in a world now where you can go on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and publish your work easier than ever. But that's yeah. usually video work that people see mostly or audition tapes. So how are you getting those scripts read? How are you getting people in the industry to take note of your work and stand above the rest when so many people want their work to be seen? Well, I think there's a couple of pieces of, of advice. And the, the first one that I would give people is um, keep writing because I read my, I go back and read my first three, four scripts, even after I started working at New Line, and they're, they're not that good. <laughs> I thought they were brilliant at the time. They're not that good. Um, it's, it takes time um, to develop your, your craft. Um, I would tell writers to pick a genre that they would be happy working in for like 10 years, because once you sell a project that's in a certain genre, that's what the business people are going to want to see from you. So if you, if you love comedy, stick with comedy. I know as artists, we like to show that we're versatile, but it's too confusing for business people to wrap their heads around. Oh, this person can write three genres. Yeah. Um, and then read scripts online from some of your favorite films in that genre, because yeah. you'll learn so much by just reading other writers. Um, get feedback, get a trusted group of people around you that give you like constructive criticism. There's people that love everything you do. There's people that hate everything you do. There's people that will give you advice based on how they would have written your script. And then there are people that will give you advice on how to make your script better. And so that fourth group is the one that you want to surround yourself with. 
Um, and there's a lot of, the great thing now is there's so many digital platforms and digital companies and smaller studios. Yeah. The big studios don't focus on them. If you look at what the big studios are doing, they're putting out remakes, sequels, movies based on, you know, best-selling books, best-selling yeah. video games. They're all about IPs. Um, but there are hundreds and hundreds of smaller studios out there. So it's, I think it's looking for people who do the kind of work that you're writing, um, approaching them. It's really hard to get an agent and a manager. Um, there's that whole chicken and the egg thing. You know, they won't sign you unless you've done something, but you can't get something done if you haven't been signed. I mean, even after Final Destination, I was hip pocketed at CAA. Like they wouldn't sign me, but I had a friend work, working there who right. hip pocketed. Um, but I would say as a writer, get, you know, I was talking to, I'm watching the time as well. Um, I was, I was working at a, I mean, I did a workshop with Craig Perry um, at a film school and we were talking and he asked the writers and the directors in the room, how many of them hung out together? And none of them did. The directors just hung out with directors. The writers just hung out. And Craig's like, guys, this is directors. You need stuff to direct writers. You need people to direct your stuff. You guys should be like best friends. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I would say find, because nothing's, Nothing speaks more to your work as if, if you can get it out and have people see it. So, you know, film competitions are really hard. Some of them are genuine, but a lot of them are just trying to get your money. Um, I, I would say become friends with a director who, who is good yeah. and shoot a short, you know, because you still, you know, if you get into a short festival, they have best screenplay competitions. But if, if people see your work, um, there's just something magical to that. Um, and be patient. My last piece of advice. Yeah. Um, cause when I went to New York at 19, I got an agent. I was working at New Line Cinema. I was doing like background work on all my children, like every other day. It was great. So I'm like, shit, I'm going to, you know, I had heard that it takes 10 years of work and struggle to, to even have some level of success. And I was like 19, I'm like screw that 10 years, literally 10 years till when I graduated high school, I sold Final Destination. Yeah. So there was so much rejection before that. And I just kept kept at it and kept growing. So, you know, stick with it. My final question for you today is to make the podcast quite unique. Every person that comes on the podcast gets to choose the outro music for the episode. So when it's on Spotify or iTunes, when people listen back, the outro piece of music is chosen by yourself. So I'm going to put you on the spot. You've got only a couple of minutes to decide. I know you'll want to pick 20, 30 different songs, but what's a song that means a lot to you? It can be any band, any artist, any musician, a piece of music from a film. What is, when I ask you the question, the first song that comes to you from the heart and soul that you think is a perfect outro piece of music that would sum up the episode of Mark and Me with Jeffrey? Oh, it's, it's not even that I'm put on the spot. I'm just trying to think of, because um, my mind's going to move horror movie soundtracks, but then I'm also trying to think of songs real quick. For the hell of it, I would do the um, the closing theme from Demons from oh, Goblin. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's that's the one that kept popping in my head. I was trying to think of a really cool song that like encapsulates me and blah 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 blah. But that's too hoity-toity. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the Demons. That's a great film. I recently got the Arrow box set, and it's incredible. So I'm, I yeah. love that film. Yeah. So play that. So Jeffrey, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I think it's fascinating. And I, want, I like I said on today's episode, I want to get more writers on. So it's an honor to have you on. Uh, I, I love your work. I'm excited to see what's going to happen next. I can't wait to see 
the announcement that one day that you cast this film with not telling anyone in Hollywood and it's it's all community members of the yeah. community. Oh, yeah. And it's, it'll be our little secret and people go back and listen to this and think, ah, oh, he announced it then. <laughs> but, um, you know, I hope that anyone listening today goes and looks and checks out Don't Look Back. And yeah, it's genuinely an absolute honor to have you on. So thank you for your time oh, today. Thank you for having me anytime. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, have a, have a great day, okay? So there it is. There's my interview with me and Jeffrey Reddick, an amazing guest and had so much to say and I wish we had more time. But as you heard on the episode, he will come back for more and I can't wait for that. A massive thank you for Jeffrey coming on and talking all about the Final Destination franchise and so much more. I'm sure that anyone that's listening today will now go and check out those films again and relive these absolute horror classics. If this is the first time you've listened to Mark and me, all I ask is you share it across your social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. It's literally the touch of a button and costs you absolutely nothing to do and can bring a whole new audience to Mark and me. All the links are on markandme.com. And while you're there, if you really want to support the podcast, I do have a Patreon account. On there, you can sign up for as little as £1 per month, which goes right back into the production of this podcast. With that money as well, I can go out there and record more and more interviews. I make no money off it, but it goes all into the production of this podcast. Not only that, I give away some incredible prizes. Each and every month, the amazing guys at Vice Press, who are easily the best poster company out there, give me some exclusive prizes just for you patrons. Not only that, there's t-shirts to win from the amazing Last Exit to Nowhere, and so much more. I try and find the best prizes that I can as a reward for saying thank you for supporting the podcast. I've had a bit of a slow start this year just because I've been editing behind the scenes, but I can guarantee the next few weeks are going to be absolutely hectic with a huge range of guests. So I'll be back with a brand new episode in the next few days. So until then, look after yourself, take care, and thank you for listening.